Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm your host and fine woodworking editor, Tom McKenna, and with me today are Regulars Executive Art Director, Mike Pekovich. Gentlemen. And Special Projects Editor, Matt Kenny. Hey, guys. How are we? Good. Pretty good. good. Pretty good. <laughs> well, before we get started, uh, I need to take care of some housekeeping. Don't forget to check our website to keep up with our exciting tool giveaway for Fine Woodworking's 40th anniversary. Uh, we have 40 great tool prizes, but they change regularly, and you have to enter for each one. The current prize is a rigid benchtop spindle slash belt sander. Uh, to enter to win that, go to finewoodworking.com slash 40 sweeps. That's the number 40. And for this prize, you have to enter by Monday, February 1st. That's an awesome tool. I it would is. like that. It's awesome. Where is uh, that? Is that in your office? Uh, <laughs> no, it's at the manufacturer, unfortunately. Okay. No, we didn't. Uh, we, we have one down in our, our shop that we purchased years ago, but I think we need an upgrade. Definitely <laughs> one of the all-time favorite tools of all time. Yeah, of that all is time. a great, yes. great tool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for 200 bucks, it's a great value. Anyway, um, hey, this month we will be giving a prize away every week, so stay in touch with, with that website uh, to keep up with what is being offered. I have, uh, I have a question about the yeah. sweepstakes. Oh, if, if I can make 52 boxes in 52 weeks, why can't we give away 52 prizes in 52 weeks? What's up with 40 prizes? Oh, 40th anniversary. 40th anniversary, yeah. man. Come on, get right. the program. Anyway, uh, Are finally. you suggesting we give away 52 boxes in 52 weeks? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a special projects for you. Uh, finally, uh, you can keep up with Fine Woodworking on Instagram and on Facebook, and you can look for Matt, Mike, and me on Instagram as well and see uh, what we're doing in our shops. Um, to begin this week, I wanted to talk to Matt a little bit. He was just down in Colonial Williamsburg for their conference on woodworking in the 18th century. So I figured I'd let him uh, chat with us about what happened, aside from lots of puffy shirts. Uh, well, actually, there were no puffy. Well, there were a few puffy shirts. <laughs> there actually were. <laughs> and a few, you know, uh, culottes. And, um, What's a culotte? You know, those little uh, knee britches that they wore back then. <laughs> Matt knows all these like technical terms for these weird apparel things. Uh, so I've, this was my fourth, fourth time at the Working Wood in the 18th Century Conference, which we happen to co-sponsor. Um, and we've co-sponsored it ever since it started, right? Yeah, I think 17 years. It's 17 or 18. Yeah. And um, this year, the, so each year they organize the conference around a particular theme. One year I went, it was about the furniture at uh, Mount Vernon. This year it was about uh, furniture in, related to leisure time mm -hmm. or leisure time. And uh, so one of the things that was uh, – made and discussed uh, by Corey Loftheim, who is the master cabinet maker in the Hay Cabinet Shop at Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, he made a, um easy chair, uh, an upholstered easy chair. So Corey demonstrated some of the joinery and some of the turning involved in that. And he, he had one, a frame of one that was already completed, so he could put it together very quickly on stage. And he did that one morning, and then the next morning they had uh, one of Colonel Williamsburg's upholsterers come in and show how he was able to look at the original that this was based on, which they have in the collection there, and he was able to look at nail holes and nail hole patterns cool. and figure out how this thing was upholstered. Awesome. And uh, so then they had a video showing – him upholstering, and they we they showed that while Corey and this man, his name is uh, Leroy. Uh, oh, I can't remember his last name, but uh, they talked about what was going on in the video. And Alf Sharp was there, uh, who is a uh, cart former cartouche winner, mm -hmm. or he's still a cartouche winner. Still. Uh, <laughs> he just he won it previously, um, and he didn't, he showed how to make a, a Philadelphia game a gaming table. Hmm. Uh, and other things were done. One of the one of the things I always look forward to is a guy named Ted Bascana, who is from the Williamsburg uh, Joiner Shop, which mm -hmm. is sort of like carpentry. And he showed how to how he demonstrated roofing a gazebo. Oh, wow! Which is really cool. 
and uh, and other people from Colonial Williamsburg also uh, did some things. The other two guys from the Hay Shop, Bill Pavlik and Brian Weldy, each demonstrated. Uh, uh, Bill was doing a music stand, mm-hmm. and Brian was showing how he and a Cooper, one of the Coopers from Williamsburg, were showing how this uh, Coopered cooler was made. So it was like wow. a you know a wooden ice bucket okay. to nice. put your Whatever you, I don't know what they were cooling. Buckets back of then. leisure, yeah, <laughs> buckets of. It wasn't Bud Light or Rolling Rock, that's for sure. Um, but what you know, so that was cool, and uh, you know, it takes place over like two and a half days, and they do two sessions each year. Hmm. And I went to the session for uh, the Society for the American Society of American Period Furniture Makers, or SAPFM, although some guys were calling it SAP FM, uh, which sounds like a radio station. and uh so most of the people there belong to satfam and one of the nights was the cartouche banquet when they awarded the cartouche award Mm -hmm. to this year's winner which was a gentleman named uh ronnie young from tennessee Mm -hmm. who did really impressive very impressive work and uh he he had a great talk uh about his work and sort of his history how he got started in woodworking uh, and it was really fascinating and interesting, and uh, it's always a good time. I, I really yeah. enjoy going there. I mean, one, what always impresses me, <clears throat> and when I've gone um, and given the speech at the at the the banquet, it's a short little speech, but I'm always impressed by the makers, the guys getting up on stage and doing what they do in front of you know 180, 200 people, and uh, they're just great woodworkers. I mean, it's a really amazing oh, yeah. yes. work to see. And um, I, I, that's one of the things that fascinates me. And they do it in a pretty entertaining fashion, too. Yeah. Almost all of them are great woodworkers. Yes. And I say this because I went to the conference once. And um, it was back when I just started. I don't even think I was teaching a lot. I was maybe demonstrating here and there at a Lee Nielsen show or woodworking show or something. You know, here's how to sharpen a plain iron. And... Asa, the former editor, he sent me down and said, Mike, I volunteered you to demonstrate. Oh, I remember. <laughs> yeah, he did the same thing to me. Between, like, the, the official lectures in the, in the lecture hall and everything, you're going to be out in the lobby while everyone's getting their little Danish and cup of coffee. Um, you're going to be there at a workbench demonstrating. It's like... Wow. Yeah, why? That, <laughs> I, that does not sound like a good idea. But, you know, I was a trooper. I took all my stuff down there, set up at a bench, did some dovetails and sharpening. And you mentioned um, uh, the gentleman who's ahead of the hay shop, Corey. Corey, Corey Loftime is now. Yeah. yeah, he was sort of at a bench kind of across from me. And he was kind of looking at me like, what are you, what are you doing? Who are you? Why are you here? And. I honestly... How did you get into my house? I had no idea what I was saying. It was very uncomfortable. I mean, people were very generous and it was fine, but it was probably one of the most uncomfortable um, moments of my life. And so when I said that not, you know, not everyone is a fantastic woodworker, me at the time probably um, should have been watching instead of talking. <laughs> Asa had me do the same thing at the next session okay. that yeah, year, and it was yeah. tremendously oh, uncomfortable because it was like... Uh, and, and you're right in the, you know, when you walk into the museum heading toward the auditorium, yes. the bench that you guys were demonstrating at is right at the entrance. Oh, and yeah. So everyone yeah. has to yeah. walk past you. And Welcome. You guys are like the only ones not wearing puffy shirts probably doing the demo. Well, yeah. well, it, was, well it was more uncomfortable, not because <laughs> neither Mike nor I are bad woodworkers or because we can't instruct people, but because we just didn't, we shouldn't have been doing it there. Yes. Right. Yeah. I, I hope Ace is not listening to this. I hope he is. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's always fantastic. And they always have one person, at least one person from the outside. Dan mm-hmm. Faya yep. was there one year. Uh, Phil Lowe was there one year, uh, which was a f- so amazing to watch Phil work and really work because he's so efficient and fast and uh Good. Yeah. I think the first year... Steve Lotta was there one year? Yeah, he was there, was it last year? No, two years ago. Two years ago. The first year I went, um, Roy, I think it was Roy Underhill was there, and they were doing some some big turnings, and they had an old um, kind of uh, hand-powered lathe up there, and it was fun. Like People were lining up to, to get up on stage to churn this big wheel. <laughs> that, was, the, I, I was, that was like two years ago. Okay. Yeah, Steve Lotta and he were there the same year, I think. Okay. Yeah, Andrew Hunter was there one year. Oh, yeah, cool. it's, it's, a, it's a good time. Yeah. I mean, it's a great hotel, lots of good restaurants, lots to see. The museum 
uh, itself is is just spectacular. Um, it's just to me, it's all around fun. Yeah, it's, so it's once a year in January. Yep, and every year in January, and there's two sessions, and one of them is normally the meeting where the Satfum guys meet, but you do not have to be a member of Satfum right. to go to that session. Yeah. So all right. well, let's move on to uh, some real business and um, get to some questions. This one comes from Andrew Potvin. And Andrew writes, I am constantly having trouble getting my table saw to be level and not wobble on a very uneven concrete floor. How can I get my table saw to be stable? And one of the things that that he wants to do is ultimately get his workbench in line with the table saw so he has an outfeed surface. So, you know, that level is is an important quality for him. Right. Well, I... I have a similar problem in my shop. Not that my floor isn't level necessarily. You know, it's not like it's uh, it's hilly, but rather that it has a very severe slope uh, in it. I think that the former owners used it as an abattoir. You know, perhaps <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, look it up later, boys. Uh, we'll have to have Ben put that definition on the website for us. Um, an abattoir. Anyways, uh, so. All of my stuff kind of has like a cant to it. You know, it lean, it kind of slopes down towards the uh, the garage doors. So you can like hose it out and so everything can, drains so out. Right. right. No, it's right. an advantage because you're always working downhill. That's right. Thank you, Tom. Uh, <laughs> but when I, uh, when I got my new bandsaw, I didn't want that to be sloped like that. So what I did was made a large platform and used uh, sort of uh, two-by-four sleepers that mm-hmm. I I cut a, uh, an angle onto to level out, you know, to counteract the slope of the floor, and then screwed down a large piece of plywood to that. So there's a large platform that my table saw, uh, my, my band saw is on, and there's also big enough for me to stand on while I'm using my band saw. Right. And he could do something mm-hmm. similar for his uh, table saw in one day, his you know big enough for his outfeed table bench, just make a very large platform. You might need to make it eight by eight, you know, two sheets of plywood. Right. Uh, depending yeah. on your, you know, I don't know if he has a fifty-two inch fence, a thirty-inch fence, whatever, but uh, make it large enough for you to stand on for the entire table saw to be on and for your workbench to be on one day. And I would guess you'd want to have a space for you to stand at while you're using it at your workbench. That's, you know, so in other words, instead of trying to wedge things here and there and all that, Mm -hmm. just level out the whole floor by making this low platform that everything fits on. Yeah. Yeah. And you could even take it to the next level. I mean, basically I suffered through a garage shop with a really uneven cracked beat up concrete floor um, same issues, and I, you know, eventually ended up do- doing what you did, Matt, but did the entire floor. I just did a insulated plywood floor across the whole garage, and it really, the hardest thing about it was just sort of moving stuff out of the way in order to do it. I sort of did it yeah. in halves. I moved all the equipment to one side, did half the floor, got a buddy to sort of lift things up to the plywood floor and to the other side, but it really was it was like a weekend job. It seems like mm-hmm. a big thing, but I did the plywood two by four is flat on the ground mm-hmm. so it yep. gave maybe about like an inch and a half of air space and the coolest thing is i went to home depot and i got to um rent one of those sort of like cartridge activated oh, nailer yeah. things yeah they're great yeah so, <laughs> so i was like firing nails like every six inches on these into studs concrete. into the concrete um and then i just laid i got some rigid insulation cut it and laid that between the the um the uh, sleepers and then just uh three quarter inch plywood on top and it worked really well. I still like it. And plus, it's so much more comfortable to work mm. on a wood floor. Yes, it is. It's easier on your feet, your back. Yep. If you drop a chisel, you're not like sticking your foot out to try to catch it with your foot instead of having it hit the concrete. That's for later smooth moves. <laughs> 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 I guess I'm lucky. My, I work in my basement, and my I don't have any really huge leveling problems. So I had a good pour, I guess. Cool. Well, a basement floor should be poor should level. Be. I mean, it's not uncommon for uh, garage floors to yeah. be sloped well, they do uh, it towards too. the, right. the right. drainage. Yeah. Mine, I didn't level it overall like yours. I'm sure it was sloped a little bit, but it wasn't enough for me to do anything yeah. about that overall. Yeah, the reason I did not do a whole floor yet, which I would like to do, is because I would like it to be level. But the, that means, you know, so my, I would probably, you know, floor about 25 to 30 feet 
length of you know from front to back. Right. And uh, I think it's like a six inch or a four a four to six inch rise over you know wow uh, slope. So I would have to really make some tall sleepers, like right. basically making floor joists. Yeah. So I've been avoiding doing that because my, you know, ultimately I just like not to be in my garage. Right. Yeah. That's a pretty extreme slope. <laughs> yeah, it is. But your lot is pretty, you're, you're on kind of a hill. So right. the owners probably needed that slope. It's also why all my furniture kind of leans over to one side. <laughs> looks was, great in the garage. <laughs> yeah. It's all, it was level in the garage. <laughs> all right. Let's move on. Um, the next question comes from uh, Adam Wellner, um, and Adam writes, I've heard some general advice of get the biggest tool you can afford so you don't need to upgrade later. But what are your thoughts on getting a better, and he means more highly reviewed machine, versus a bigger but still well-reviewed machine at a similar price? Um, for example, looking at a high-end contractor saw is similar in price to some well-reviewed hybrid best-value table saws, which have larger motors. The same is true of 14-inch versus 18-inch bandsaws. What are your thoughts? And we chatted a little bit about this yesterday. Matt had some some interesting concepts, uh, as always. <laughs> so I think, actually, you're, the, you can't it's, answer this question for all machinery. Yeah, I think right. it depends yeah. on the machine. And, yeah. But, yeah, so for I thought, you know, for example, with the table saw... Uh, a contractor uh, under I think under if I had the choice of buying a contractor saw or a cabinet saw style hybrid, right? Which in which the trunnions and all that assembly are attached to the base rather than to the tabletop of the saw, right? I any given day I would take the cabinet style hybrid saw, mm-hmm. yes, because there mm-hmm. are inherent problems with the, the design of a contractor saw that some saws maybe overcome them, but Generally, we've you know like we have pro- there are problems with them, and uh, one of them is making adjustments to parallel you know blade to slot parallelism and things like that. Uh, so I think in that case I would always take the best value cabinet style saw as opposed to the more expensive supposedly higher end contractor saw or the best overall right. contractor uh, the saw. best overall right. yeah so. I, I, but that's that particular machine. I sure. think with yeah. bandsaws, it's a different story. Well, let's go back to the um, contractor saw for just a sec. The, the main difference between the two, and you talked about the ease of getting your blade set up, has to do with the trunnion or sort of the blade mechanism. M- mechanism On contractor saws, it's attached to the underside of the, the, table. of the tabletop, right. where on a cabinet-style saw, it's attached to the cabinet. Yes. Also, you have a cabinet, which collects the dust and makes it easier to get dust collection. But let me throw this at you, because I'm not sure about the answer for this. Mention contractor saw. What about like a saw stop contractor saw versus a a different brand of hybrid saw, which is obviously you're going to get more saw, you have the cabinet, maybe more horsepower. Where do you go there? Well, you're to the bank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, we're no longer talking about best value cabinet saws anymore because right. the con- the saw stop contractor saw, I believe, is around sixteen. Well, we're talking about best overall contractor, which would probably be a saw stop. Yes. You know, that'd be all the Correct. most expensive. That's what I mean. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's best about sixteen hundred dollars. Sure. So now you're no longer talking about best value cabinet saw. Uh, con- you know, you you can move up and. Uh, I don't know if you have to pay shipping for the contractor style saw stop or not. Hmm. You may not. If you do, then you're talking about two grand or something. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, I th- still think I go with cabinet saw. Hmm. I without the the little safety technology there. Yes. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. But if I, you're talking, once you you know. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, for I me. think you know part of it probably depends on how often and what you're using your table saw for. I'm, since I've gotten a better bandsaw, I'm using my table saw less. You know, and I have a, yeah. I have one of those nasty uh, contractor saws. It's fine, but it has inherent the inherent problems that Matt talked about. And one of the big things for me is 
the dust, you know, it just it has that big open end and there, you know, it has a dust port underneath, but right. it does no good because I've got a big flapping door on the back end that stays open all the time. Yeah, so, but I will say that that con- the saw stop contract saw was a very good saw. Mm-hmm. It you know it did uh, very well when we tested it, and yeah. also when home building tested it. So it would be hard to it, it would be a hard choice. Yeah, I think what yeah. makes it hard is is a purchase like that. You're going to live with for a really long time, right? And so, see, I don't yeah, think you're I'm not going to contractor upgrade, saw yeah. knowing that. And this, and for the same thing, I've got a Delta Unisaw, so I've worked for 30 years without flesh sensing technology. I've got all 10 fingers. That today. said, today, right now, um, that said, and I know we're, we're sometimes accused of sort of, you know, pushing saw stop or or whatever or any particular brand, but it works so well. And it really will keep you from cutting your fingers off at the table saw. Yeah. That yeah. It's, I couldn't imagine, I would really like to upgrade my saw. I still haven't done it. But um, if I were investing in the saw, it would be really hard for me to, number one, have to live with the contractor saw for a long time. Number two, have to live without a, a flesh sensing technology in a saw for a really long time. So to Tom's point, you know, it's an investment. I think it's an investment you need to make. So even if you go for a hybrid saw, spend a little bit more money. Get a saw stop. I would, I would personally would. Yes. Um, and I would feel, and then that's a saw, even though it doesn't, maybe, might not have the power I would like in the long run. You can do a lot of really good work in a home shop with mm-hmm. something like that yeah. for a really long time. So Yeah, and you know, it's hard for, when, when it gets to contractor saw, it's easy for me to say I, I will not buy a contractor saw. I'll save up and get the extra, the, get the, the next up saw stop or something. Yeah. Right. But then you know you have to keep in mind that for me it's uh, the money that I use to buy tools is money that I get from teaching or selling furniture or in boxes. Right. So it's not coming out of our primary income. Yeah. So it's a little easier for me to say, well, I'm just going to save up and I'll teach an extra class or I'll. You know, I'll really work hard to try to sell some more boxes this year. Yeah, the kids are just going to wear yeah. these shoes for another year. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, they're just not going to eat, you know, fresh milk <laughs> for a year or two. Well, they can skim the, uh, the chunks off, right? <laughs> yes. But uh, band saws, I think, are a completely different topic. Yeah. I yeah. do yeah. think that you would be better off getting a high-end 14-inch bandsaw with, you know, like a European-style frame uh, the steel frames yeah. with uh, good guides, tall fence, uh, tall fence, short fence option. You know the yeah. fences that are yeah. tall and short yeah. that have drift that can adjust for drift. That have good guides that have a strong post uh, and have a, lo- a little bit larger motor and like a twelve inch resaw capacity, as opposed to buying a lower end like eighteen inch bandsaw. Hmm. I, I would probably do that. And you could look at we've we've tested 14s mm-hmm. and 18, you know, sort of that range recent in the last couple of years. And you could look at that and say, okay, I can either get the best overall 14 inch bandsaw from that test, or the uh, best value from this test. You know, right? Now, yeah. And traditionally, the knock on the 14 inch saw, which I had the Delta 14 inch for a long time, it was either resaw capacity if you didn't have the riser block, or if you did have a riser block. Um, maybe the the resaw the power for resawing wasn't there. Maybe the guide system wasn't there. The dust collection wasn't there. The ability to do serious resawing um, was limited on a smaller saw. So it really justified going up to a bigger saw because mm-hmm. you're going to get a lot more features. Yeah. So, but now I think you said the new breed of the smaller saws can tackle the big jobs as well as going to a saw with bigger wheels. But yeah. that yeah. said, I do have a lower price bigger saw. Mm-hmm. I love it. Tom, you have yeah, a I've, higher price, smaller saw. I and do. You're happy with that guy. Yeah, but I also, um, I'm stepping up from a low-end, functional 14-inch uh, bandsaw that, you know, didn't have a riser block. It had mm-hmm. that old cast iron frame with an open base, but... It functioned really well <laughs> as a anchor. No, it was fine for, for curves, but, you know, there's no way I could do any, you know, serious resawing. And just in terms of the guides and the features and everything, you know, it's just... You know, it's like doing my own tool review where I, I suddenly have this aha moment. And it's like, this is what I've been missing all my, my career years. Yeah. I mean, a great bandsaw. I have a, I bought a larger 
bandsaw based on the recommendations of Raleigh Johnson. Uh, it, that it was like the best overall, I think, in the last time we did big bandsaws. Mm-hmm. It's the Grizzly you have 19, a 19 inch. inch, right? I have the 17 inch. Fantastic saw, great saw. You know, it was like seventeen, eighteen hundred bucks. You know, and uh, if I were to do it over again now, I might be tempted to get the fourteen inch that was best overall the last time we did them. The Laguna. Laguna, the 1412. Yeah. Which is also the best value. Yes. And the Powermatic was the uh, the other winner. Uh, was the best, best overall, overall. Right. yeah. But is about twice the money, I think. Yes. Yeah. Damn. I mean, but to be honest, I mean, we're talking about this, but, you know, what I'm actually thinking in the back of my head now, and I have been for a while, is that, yeah, I like that Grizzly. I Honestly, I wish I would have gotten like a Minimax 16-inch bandsaw. Something a little bit beefier, a little bit bigger, five, a little bit bigger motor, uh, and that's sort of in the back of my head that I'm going to sell my bandsaw and move up to like a Minimax 16, mm-hmm. which has a higher, more resaw capacity uh, and uh, is a little more of an industrial machine as opposed to a home shop machine. Mm-hmm. Well, I heard that Ben Strano is looking for a bandsaw. Is he? <laughs> maybe maybe he'll pay me twenty five hundred for my bandsaw. Best thing about new staffers is you can you know everybody moves up a notch on their uh, equipment. That's right. All right. Well, let's move on to. Uh, let me see if I can get this right now. Uh, let's talk about our all time favorite technique of all time for this week. Um, this is actually a brand new. Technique, not really. It's an old technique that I've sort of put to a different use. Um, I was teaching a design class uh, this weekend at Connecticut Valley, which went really well. And um, I've done like, you know, drawing, sketching, scale drawing, scale mock-ups. But in this class over two days, I wanted to move up to a full-size mock-up to sort of get to that point right before you're ready to build. You know, it's like, you know, I wanted to go through the design process all the way up until you're ready to drop a full-size plan or whatever you need to do. Um, and I thought the final mock-up was really the the missing link in this. And um, so I didn't want everyone having to build like a giant piece of furniture. I wanted something that, um, that was doable. So I came up with uh, the last task was to do like a small nightstand, end table, cabinet, whatever you wanted. And I got the idea from uh, watching Steve Latta and Bob Van Dyke, who whenever they're, they're laying out veneers for tabletops and that kind of stuff, um, Bob has this little uh, pair of mirrors that are hinged together, 12 by 12 mirror. You put it on a piece of veneer, and the way you, you angle the mirrors, you can sort of see, get a preview of what this veneer is going to look like when it's subdivided at, at different angles and such. And then Bob was using the same thing. He was testing out different um, little inlay details on a table he was making, mm-hmm. a small table. So he would take a corner of a table and come up with an inlay design, put the corner of the table on the finished base, put the mirror on top of this corner, and it gave you a full-size top sitting on top of the table, overhangs mm-hmm. four different corners, and it worked really, really well. So I thought, what if we kick that idea up a notch further, get some bigger mirrors. Some, I think we got like 36 by 24 mirrors. Two of them taped them together, put them on the floor. And that way it allowed us to make a little quarter, like a quarter of a full-size mock-up for a table that we could stick into the corner of these mirrors. And um, I really didn't know if this was going to work or not. And um, But we got it together. I got my little corner table and I put it in the little corner of the mirrors and it was like magic. It was like a whole full piece of furniture. Yeah, I saw the I saw the quick video you you shot of it, and, and it was amazing. Yeah, so I did a really quick uh, post on my Instagram account um, where I'm uh, putting this little quarter table into the mirror, and bam, there's like a whole piece of furniture. I mean, I did one leg in one corner, two aprons, two half aprons, one leg, and a quarter of a top, and you put it in there, and you literally see the whole thing, and, and you see the leg in four different positions. The ex- in ex- exactly right, and it's like, why have I never done this before? And um, Ben Strano, who was taking the class with me, he was he tried this out, and we were looking at his little table, and we were thinking, the legs are maybe just a little too long. You probably want to cut an inch off those legs. And Ben was thinking, ah, oh, great, I got to cut an inch off four legs. 
And I'm kind of thinking the same thing. And he takes the mock-up away from the mirrors. He goes, oh, no, I just have to cut off one leg. He's like, oh, of course. So it worked out really well. So the, the whole doing a quarter full-size mock-up, stick it in a hinged mirror, and you got like the whole thing. And it was like really, really cool. Worked fantastic. That's awesome. That's awesome. I thought you got that idea from your uh, dressing room where you <laughs> check out your uh, Carhartt ensembles each morning before you come to work. Well, I do that. <laughs> uh, is it my turn now? Yeah, what the heck? Okay. Uh, so um, my is something I came up with. I'm sure other people have done it, though, uh, to route some dados in a little tea box that I'm making right now, which has – it has some uh, uh, some dividers in it to create a space for a door and some drawers. Yeah, this isn't a box as much as a case, like a little It's case a small piece. case piece. Yeah. yeah, it's a very small case piece uh, or a very large box. But it is a box. Let's not – No, let's not, no, no, no. We're fair not enough. questioning sure. that. We're not yes. questioning that. Um, so uh, normally when I would do that – you know, you would, I would start off with two pieces, like two sides that are the same length, and I would set up my router table uh, so I could do stop dados. And that works because the two parts are the same length, and as long as you register the same end of each piece off the fence, those dados end up exactly perfectly aligned. Yes. So that when you slide that divider in later, it's square to the parts. Mm-hmm. Well, with this case piece, uh, this box rather, um, the pieces that needed to be – like the opposing pieces that needed the dados were not the same length because one of them was the top of the case. One of them was a divider in the case, and then one of them was the side, and then one of them was a vertical divider. Okay. So they weren't all the same length. And I was like, you know, how am I going to do this? In the past, I've made spacers and try to really accurately dial in the spacer so that I can put that spacer – against the fence when I do the shorter part yes, and still have it come out the same. Right. But this time I said this piece is actually big enough in t- on the interior for me to get one of my trim routers in. I have a, a, a Porter right. Cable 310 trim router, which isn't made anymore, but it's very short. It's, okay. uh, and uh, it's really nice. And I got a square base on it. So I said, well, why don't I do this? Why don't I dry assemble, like I glued the case together, the four, you know, case pieces, and then I could dry fit the first divider in there that, and then I could route the two, uh, two dados. And I said, this is cool what I'm going to do. And then I thought about using the old T square trick, you know, where you, uh, and, but I said, you know, I'm a little worried about the T square thing. So what I, cause I didn't know if it would be exactly, cause then you still have to, uh, mark the two accurately. Yes. And if because if you don't mark them accurately, it doesn't matter how accurate the T square is. Right. So what I did instead was dry fit it or glued it up, dry fit that first divider in, and cut an MDF spacer that moved my router over to where so the bit would route where I wanted to cut. Yes. And so I used that spacer on the top of the case by putting it against one side mm-hmm. of the case, and then when I had that uh, divider dry fit. I could put that spacer against the same side of the case, and it would move my router over the exact same amount. Yes. And then when I routed both of those, they would line up perfectly. Cool. And I used that technique for all of the divider uh, dados in the in the case, and it worked great. No, nice. Awesome. So it's sort of the same technique where you use a, a board or a piece of MDF to register um, – Drawer like slides. drawer slides yeah. on yes. the interior of a case, but yeah, you're yeah, just yeah. using the router. Awesome. Yeah, it worked really well. Cool. Well, mine is a little bit more low-tech. I, I made a, a bandsaw box out of a log, and when I was making the lid, I was trying to figure out – hold on. I was trying to figure out how to um, – I wanted an overhang. I didn't want a knob on or a pull on top of the lid. I wanted just a flat – thing and I so I needed an overhang to be able to pull the lid off and I was trying to figure out how best to dial that in and something you know twitched in my brain and I, and I don't know sometimes these things happen aneurysm <laughs> but <laughs> I recalled some article that that I photographed and it was a Michael Fortune article and it was a uh, fundamentals on drawing curves that mm-hmm. appeared uh, a few years ago and um, what Michael was doing was he would use French curves on his drawings, and when he wanted to space a line out from that curve or that arc, he would use a, a washer and put the pencil point 
in the middle of the washer and running along the curve of the French curve. Okay. So, I thought, so the washer is rolling along the edge. Exactly. And cool. spacing the pencil point out from the curve. And so I thought, wow, that's, that should work here. And so I grabbed uh, one of the washers. I, I had a handful of washers in my tool cabinet, and uh, they never get used. And finally, I found a use for them. And I just <laughs> experimented, you know, drawing on the the top blank, you know, tracing around the curve of the box until I found the right width washer. And then I traced it and cut it out on the bandsaw and, and refined it by eye. And it was like brilliant. Very thought, cool. Wow. That is very, very cool. Awesome. So thank you, Michael. And I think that that article appeared in um, issue number 199 in 2008. So thank you again, Michael. Cool. That was just prior to the Matt Kinney era. That's when everything changed. That's when everything changed. It's amazing. <laughs> Let's uh, move back to some questions. Uh, this one comes from Mike Firestein, and he writes, <clears throat> excuse me, I recently received a fine Japanese Ryoba saw, which is easily the nicest tool that I have. For the time being, my saw is homeless. Wah, wah, wrapped in a towel on my bench. I've seen most Japanese saws like this hung on walls, but this tool has no real way to hang it. How can I store and take care of this tool so it lasts me for years? And and Matt had some uh, I get to interesting solutions. Yeah, come on. Dive in. So first of all, he is a little incorrect that there's no way to hang it because it's a Ryoba saw, which means the handle comes up, and then when it gets to the blade, it actually sort of curves out on each side of the handle and then goes up where the teeth are. So the way these are often hung is that you, instead of having the handle up, you have the blade up. And you can put two dowels in the wall or two nails in the wall and just underneath where the blade curves in back into the handle, mm -hmm. and that'll hold it up. I've seen them hung that way uh, quite a bit. How about pegboard? How do you feel about that? What's pegboard? <laughs> I think it says, when he says a, a fine saw, that can mean a lot of things yes. in relation to Japanese tools. Um, I have what I consider to be you know, a pretty good quality uh, Japanese dovetail saw a dozuki and um but not so fine a quality that i was afraid to drill a hole in the end of the handle so i can hang it from a dowel because mm -hmm. it's you know it's like a 30 or 40 dollars kind of with a replaceable blade yes but yeah. if you're talking like you know a handmade hand filed hand hammered saw from japan by an individual maker where you're spending multiple hundreds of dollars Maybe not yeah, you drill don't. a hole in the hand. Because actually that guy will feel it, and he'll come over <laughs> to the United States, and he will pound you. I know people this that have built um, cases or boxes for their saws, yeah. which is a really elegant solution. Um, I would say you probably, just just to keep the rust off of it, if you're in a shop that isn't really conditioned well, the, the saw itself, all my hand tools, I tend to keep in a fairly... Um, enclosed case in my case it's a it's a tool cabinet or drawers um, so if you don't have either of those i think make a nice little case for it and just the ritual of pulling out your case and taking your saw out will add to i think the user experience of the tool i see nothing wrong with that i think it's very no. valid there you go um if you are going to hang it up you don't want to drill a hole in anything or, or even the dowels a lot of the tools in my tool cabinet um are are secured on the bottom by a little shelf, but then also by a magnet to hold them to it. And I don't like the notion of direct magnet to steel contact. So I have strips of wood where I'll bore in from the back with a Forstner bit uh, really close to the surface. I'll glue in a rare earth magnet from the back, attach the, the little strip to uh, my case, and there's enough uh, magnetism there for the saw or the ruler or my dial caliper to sort of stick to that strip, but still mm -hmm. have wood between the the steel, in this case, between the steel saw blade and um, the magnet itself. So get creative, have some fun. Figure out a way to hang it up. I can't believe I didn't think of this already. Oh, no. <laughs> no, what I did, because for my back saws, which I didn't have anywhere to keep in my tool, my original tool cabinet, which I still use uh, in my shop in addition to another one, so on the doors that open up, mm -hmm. on the inside of the doors, I made uh, – uh, I took blocks of wood, you know, maybe a half inch, uh, five inch thick, and I used the saw to cut a kerf down oh, into sure. it. And oh, yeah. then I just 
uh, scooped, you know, cut a a little notch in the end where so that the handle could fit oh, the down. The handle in. will register to that yeah. to keep it from falling out. And I just tilt them. You know, they're just kind of canted up a little bit so that I can just stick it in there. And I actually have a little leather strap that comes over and just there's a hole in the strap that goes over a nail. Cool. And that, but you don't really need that. But it's like you could just make that just by just by cutting it. Oh, that's cool. And here's another idea: is you don't need to like build like a big giant tool cabinet to like house a tool, especially if you're getting started in your collection. Start with a small cabinet. So maybe a small cabinet to house your saw, maybe some chisels, maybe a couple drawers for knickknacks, and hang that on the wall. And then when you get more tools, build another cabinet and put it next to it. There you go. Well, so yeah, what, I, what I'm currently doing in my shop for all my stuff is actually making like a Tansu-style tool cabinet yeah. where there's one box for chisels, yeah, one box for this, one box for that. And uh, so you could start doing that. Yeah, that's great. Is that going to be part of your 52 boxes? No, 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 no. All right. Don't be a smart owl. Matt Kenny, 52-box <laughs> tool chest. That's right. That's next year. Yes. <laughs> 52 <laughs> case pieces. There's going to be Kenny. one box for each chisel. <laughs> now, that's fancy. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's move on to uh, the next question. This one comes from Andy Coletti, who asks, A little over a year ago, I made a book-matched live-edge walnut table that was about one inch thick. I didn't finish the underside. Now there is a sizable bow in it. My first thought was to rip it down the middle and resurface it, but I have a few Dutchmen in the board, and I don't want any tear out. My theory is to attack the top with my orbit. Well, I'm sorry. My other theory is to attack the top with my orbital sander and remove the finish, and then refinish both sides. Please let me know your thoughts. Sounds like a nightmare. Well, you can get that um, that two part epoxy finish. You know, the kind that you bury seashells and pennies in. <laughs> And you can just sort of, you know, make a, make, make a, a lake. duct tape and make a dam around all four edges and just fill it till it's level. It's self-leveling. Yes. So it would just be dead flat. It's it's like it only take about eight gallons. It's like that bar top finish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, if you didn't want to do that. Well, I, I, getting back to the question, why is it? Um, why is it cupping? Why is it cupping? Now, it, it sounds like his, his thought was that because one side was yeah. finished and one wasn't, that could be. Um, it could also be that. If it's live edge, if it wasn't really kiln dried or dry dry, it could be cupping just because it's sort of getting to its equilibrium moisture content. Um, if you don't want to mess around with finish, and I think I mentioned this solution before, um, and it's one I mentioned because I actually tried it and it worked pretty well to fix a cup tabletop. And it's really cool because you don't damage the finish on the top. It's where you get a circular saw and some sort of straight edge guide clamped to the bottom and rip some non-through grooves almost, you know, as close to the ends as you can get. Um, I'd say, I think we started inch and a half apart, ended up cutting them like three quarters of an inch apart, starting maybe two inches in from each long edge. So we had, I don't know, 20 or 30 little cuts there. And that releases enough of the tension where you can clamp it flat and my guess, if it's a live edge top and it's cupping, it means you probably don't have any sort of support system below, like four legs and four aprons that are really keeping this flat. So you might want to add some cleats. Yep. You know, if you get some cleats, um, do some nice little tapers on the end so they look nice and they're not really visible from the sides. You could probably clamp this thing flat, screw some cleats along the bottom face to sort of keep it flat, and that might solve the trick that might solve the problem so i i just thought about this <clears throat> if it's uh if he finished the top and that would mean that it would probably dry most on the bottom so what if it's cupping down See? well no he he would the way he described it was that the the tabletop was dished like was dished okay uh, so it's in the amount. center yeah. so if it's so, dished like that that's one solution yeah, I mean, if um, if it was caused, you know, it's it's hard to say. If one side was finished, one side wasn't, and it's bowing um, toward the finished side, it means in one sense that the tabletop is um, is getting more moist, right. right? And it's expanding, but the top is not allowing to to yeah. expand. Or depending on the on the green grain, the ring orientation, yeah. Um, that will tell you if it's cupping. Well, if it's live edged and it's yeah. got a joint down the middle, 
It sounds like, doesn't it? Yeah, if they're book match. It's book match. Talk about a book match. Yeah. That means the grain, the, you know, the rings on one are facing up and the rings on the other are facing down mm. uh, because it's book matched. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't think too much about it. My head is hurting already. Yeah. yeah. I what I would I, I would rip it down the middle. You do that. Yeah. And resurface it. And resurface it. it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think I would do that because once you if he says it's a what would, what did he say it was like a half inch. One inch thick. Inch thick. No, no, no. With, but he said there was... Oh, quarter inch at the center. Quarter inch at yes. the center. So if you rip it in half, you've just cut that in half to an eighth of an inch. Right. Yeah. So you won't have to do much flattening to get it back. And you might lose... It might be down to seven-eighths of an inch or a little bit less uh, after you do all that work. Yeah. He, he was worried about his... The work he did on the Dutchmen. Um, so the Dutchmen are right down the middle. He didn't say in the letter. I don't know where where they are. But well, if they're I mean, not if where you. Oh, if he's be, got to flatten it. He's going to do some kind of damage, see, perhaps, yeah. to them. But you know, I think uh, when you're desperate measures or desperate situation requires desperate yeah. solutions. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I wish we knew more about the construction of the piece because then we might be able to also offer advice on how to avoid yeah, how to attach this problem it. in the future. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. like Mike said, it sounds like it's not fully supported or, or cinched down to its base. So it's, it's allowing uh, movement on, on the ends. Right. Right, I mean, a lot of natural edge slab furniture is built that way. Like, yeah. you know, Nakashima style yeah. furniture, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of uh, support underneath the top to, to keep, help keep it flat. Yeah, Usually there is some cross member, whether it's yes. sort of a stretcher or the, the top portion of a trestle end or something like that, which is acting as a cleat to mm-hmm. keep it flat. I think, most successful pieces of furniture have something extending almost the full width at either end of the top to help keep it flat. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on. Uh, this episode, uh, we're adding a new segment to spice things up a little bit. And this will be our all-time favorite piece of furniture of all time this week. Hey, I got it right twice. <laughs> I'm pretty impressed. That's pretty awesome. Um, Did you have to write it down or anything? No, but it's on the camera right in front of me now. So I'm very, oh. you know, I'm glad I hired Ben. He's good. It's a very low-tech <laughs> teleprompter that we have it over is. there. It's a printed piece of paper. It's just the one line I never get right. Yes. It's awesome. <laughs> so uh, do you want to start us off, Mike? Do you have uh, an example um, that you want to chat about? Sure. I mean, one, one piece that comes to mind um, that I really liked was actually really influential not only in a lot of furniture I made for a long time and actually sort of still make to a certain extent, but it seemed to have influenced a lot of the furniture our readers make as well. It was a piece that was on the cover of our, I think it was a February 1994 issue of Fine Woodworking by Garrett Hack. It was this little, um, very light, delicate, shaker-inspired, um, I guess a sideboard, uh, something like that. There's multiple drawers. I believe the piece was in maple with... Um, Pear? Some birch or flame birch. With flame birch? It was light. I'm going to say was... maple with pear drawer fronts. Yes. So yeah. contrasting drawer fronts. So what I liked about it is that um, it had sort of a somewhat traditional look to it. It turned legs, so very shaker-inspired. But I think it was the first time where I had seen a traditional piece that also started to incorporate contrasting woods in a really sort of personal and contemporary design sensibility. So he wasn't replicating a shaker piece. He wasn't making modern furniture that had no correlation to anything that had been made before. It was someone who was very familiar with a traditional style, but um, also imparted his own personality into the piece. And one thing I, I didn't really appreciate at the time is that Garrett Hack is a master of building light. In fact, I think this piece was like, you know, a a light and sturdy case or something like that. But he taught me more than anybody else that um, you can go a lot thinner with components in a piece than you think you need to in order to still have a rigid and, and structurally sound piece, but visually go much, much lighter. So even though I wasn't aware of what I really liked when I first saw it was the contrast between the elements and that sort of personal creative style, what was uh, more subtle, but I think just as important and is probably presented a bigger lesson for me over the long run was, was really um, building either building light or building heavy, but really controlling the look of your piece by the, the scale of the elements within the piece itself. So yeah. beautiful piece on its own and also just a great, um, 
education in furniture design. Yeah, although I wasn't born when that article came out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, you were. <laughs> that piece, I love that piece of furniture too. And in fact, when I interviewed for this job, uh, Asa asked me about uh, to name a couple of fine woodworking articles that were I, I, important to me, significant to me, and that was one of them because mm-hmm. that piece of furniture I still think is one of the most beautiful pieces that's been in the magazine throughout the history of the magazine. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's phenomenal, and it, and it keeps coming back. You know, when we do articles by Garrett um, in talking about his construction and design talk, that piece always comes back it's really it's iconic to me it, it, for me in a way i think it is that piece and actually a lot of garrett's design in general is quintessential fine woodworking if there was a fine woodworking aesthetic it would sort of be that grounded in tradition but clearly contemporary elegant light with, yeah with a personal touch with a you, personal yeah, touch where you take yeah. that that traditional piece and you make it your own yeah so do you cool. want to do you want to hit us up, Matt? Yeah. So my piece is something more recent. Uh, it was on the cover. Now I don't remember what cover issue it was. Mike probably does. Um, is it up on the wall there? There it is. Issue two hundred and forty-two. It's on the <laughs> wall behind us. Uh, it's Andrew Hunter's uh, Hutch. Uh, Hutch. Yeah, that's what we're going to call it. A Hutch. And it's a very beautiful piece made from uh, eastern white pine for the case, and then the. Uh, the the countertop on the hutch and also the top of the hutch are red oak. And what I really like about this piece is, one, I like it has a very, I don't know, it's like an elegant country feel to it. So it's clearly sort of country, but it's also very clean and modern. I agree with that, yeah. Yeah, which I yeah. like a lot. Uh, so it's he's sort of taken, uh, you know, a very American vernacular uh, style of furniture. And instead of, you know, having lots of knotty pine and, you know, hearts cut into it and stuff, he's cleaned it up and given it a very modern feel. Yeah, and he didn't stain it with walnut. And he didn't stain, stain it. it. And, he's, <laughs> and he's also making this completely with hand tools, yes. which yes. you think also yeah. is related to traditional furniture design or, or historic reenactment or something. But he's taking traditional methods, traditional materials, and, making, and like you said, bringing a really contemporary sensibility to it. Like just because you use old tools doesn't mean you have to make furniture that looks old. Right. right. And yeah. it's all. It's also cool because it's a very American, clearly an American piece of furniture. Yeah. But it's all made with Japanese tools. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> but what I also like about it, I love there's this vertical uh, divider between the two doors on the bottom. And I just love how it comes down past the bottom of the piece and has this mm-hmm. slight radius on it. Yes. And there's two little pegs in it to yeah. keep it on that uh, the bottom of the case. And that's just fantastic. And the, the milk-painted back, shiplack back, is milk-painted which is a really nice touch, you know, obviously I, I would like that. And just even the spindles up at the plate rack, uh, the spindles aren't turned, they're not perfect circles, they're, uh, you know, hand-shaped, faceted uh, spindles, you yeah, know, in red like oak. they're riven from, a, what, a piece of firewood or something? Yes, yeah, yeah riven, that's what, uh, yeah, that's what they were. They weren't spoke-shaped, yeah. I don't think. No, uh, but he did spoke-shaped. Yeah, after he, 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 after he, yeah. yeah, yeah so arrived them. Split them out so the grain is like, perfectly intact through the length of the spindles and yeah 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 and there's nails there but the nails are used in a very tasteful way to where they almost look like pegs you know there there are nails where you would expect pegs to be like joinery so uh just i think everything about it is just it's wonderful and it would look nice in just about any home nowadays. Oh yeah, yeah. At a, a, a country cabin or a New York loft. Yeah, it, would, it really. What I, what I you know I I really like this piece too, and and I I'm actually thinking of not making the entire piece, but I was looking at it in terms of just the lower portion as just a standalone cabinet. It would, it would look great. You know the proportions are great, and like Matt talked about that. Um, rail or style rather uh extending down below the front it's sort of like an architectural i think it's what is it a corbel or something is that what it's called not a corbel um but there are pendant there's some it's it's really a cool element that just it's subtle it's you know less than a quarter of an inch or about a quarter of an inch you know long and it really stands out Mm -hmm. obviously i really love this piece as well i I agree 100 percent and andrew's design sensibility um 
is really quiet, and I really like that in furniture. I think it's why I like Garrett Hack's work. I like the work of James Krenov and, and other people, and um, it's nice. It's I think it takes a lot of courage to do things that are really simple, really plain, and still, you know, but they still really have their own sense of style and personality. And I think the reason why that little detail you guys both pick up on is such a significant thing is because of the restraint that he's shown overall in the piece where the more quiet a piece is, the more effect even subtle details can have in a piece. Yeah. Even the, even the contrasting top um, of the case and the top of the work surface below, I think it's red Oak. Yeah. It's red Oak. Yeah. It's, you know, it's very subtle, just like the, the milk paint in the background. It's yeah. just kind of, it all, it all flows together. It's really a sweet piece. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I have, uh, I have something different. <laughs> and what I've done, I, I mean, when I was thinking of design, I didn't have a whole lot of time to think about this, but, um, I was on a photo shoot a couple of years ago with Dan Faya, where he built uh, a Bombay chest and, I was driving back and forth uh, to New Hampshire to his shop, you know, once a month or whatever the timing was. And uh, he built this Bombay chest. And I know it's a period piece, but he did, uh, he took basically the the traditional form and he added his own uh, small details. He did some fretwork at the top and uh, some more details on the bottom. And I'm not a period furniture expert, so um, I'm not sure what the real differences are. But just in terms of, Watching him work, that's what sort of drew me to this piece. I mean, the fact that you've got all these curves in every different plane and watching him fit the uh, the brass hardware, you know, in the concave and convex sections of the of the drawer fronts and then hand hand do, doing all the fretwork by hand and just um, like with the stippling technique to add the texture in the recessed areas. To me, it, it, it's it's a it's a classic design and just watching him make it was just an amazing uh, feat and um, really just made me think, well, you know, the period guys did have uh, some pretty good chops to just (laughs) make this thing. What uh, one of the other things that really drew me to it was not having ever seen someone take a big old fat chunk of wood and then just carve it into these, these curvaceous forms and by doing so, you create these beautiful grain patterns on the side of the piece and on the front. And he's able to retain it um, even through the, the, the horizontal dividers in, in the work. It's just, uh, to me, it's, it's a master craftsman uh, type piece. Yeah. I really like on the front drawers, these were cut from solid wood, if yeah. I recall correctly, yes. that because of the way they're cut and everything, you have what's it's sort of like the center of a bullseye in the right. second to the bottom. There's four drawers, and this would be in the second one from the bottom and then that radiates out throughout all the drawers and it's just this nice pattern that it creates on the yeah. front of and it's a pattern that's very uh, pleasing with a curve i have to imagine you could have cut this out from boards in such a way that the pattern it created would not be pleasing right uh but dan did a wonderful job with that grain on the front yeah uh, and, and on the, you know it, it's the same on the sides one of the things that dan did i mean he he basically spared no expense but you know he got some huge wide boards and i can't remember what lumber yard it came from but that's he, he doesn't he want was, you to tell anybody either. <laughs> <laughs> that exactly that's yeah. how he was able to create the uh, the wonderful grain was he he had big fat wide boards and he just chopped them down and uh, carved a masterpiece like I said yeah Yeah. I mean everything from controlling the grain to the overall workmanship to the the carving details really it's it's someone who has mastered the medium and is really working with the quintessential understanding of the medium in which he works and it's just you know I don't care whether it's clay or oil paint or architecture you know, Dan is a true master of his craft. Yeah. 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 And one, th- one thing we did not mention that we should mention is that those of you who are watching the video right now are seeing these uh, pieces flash right. before you on the screen. But if you're listening, you can go to our website where the pay, you know, the individual pages for this particular episode of the podcast, and there will be photos of these pieces right. there to look at. Yeah. Now, uh, now that we have a, a web producer who's, uh, you know, churning out and working out. And it's not a, Ed. Thing. Yeah, yeah, Ed was, oh, boy. was terrible. 
Anyway, all right. We, let, we, let's, we miss Ed. Let, let's wrap it up. We do miss Ed, uh, even if he has to wear khakis. Uh, <laughs> that's that's it for this episode of Shop Talk Live. Tune in again in two weeks on February 12th for our next episode. Meanwhile, if you have any woodworking questions, send them as well as your comments to shoptalk at taunton.com. Spread the word about Shop Talk Live. Matt's pointing to something, and I don't know what he's pointing to. Nothing. Go ahead. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> All, right. All right. Spread the word about Shop Talk Live. Hook us up with your woodworking friends by any means necessary, including Twitter and Facebook. And you can catch the podcast via iTunes. And while you're there, please give us the all-powerful five-star rating. You can also stream the podcast on the web at www.shoptalklive.com or catch us on iHeartRadio. Thanks for listening and have fun in the shop. See you next time, guys. I think that the former owners used it as an abattoir, you know, perhaps. What? <laughs> yeah, look it up later, boys. Uh, we'll have to have Ben put that definition on the website for us. Abattoir. Noun. A slaughterhouse. Contemporary examples. The abattoir was being used as a distribution plant for the meat of cattle slaughtered outside the city. Abattoir.